This is Future Diaries, a podcast from the future, from the future. Welcome to Future Diaries, the podcast that transcends space and time. I'm Antonis. And I'm Mike. And we're your hosts. Today's episode is the second in a two-part series inspired by recent interactions we've had with our listeners. As we mentioned on the last episode, the Future Diaries crew has been in contact with listeners over the last year. And some of you have expressed interest in supporting the show financially and learning more about the economies on Earth and the universes we live in. That's right, Mike. If you'd like to support our show in your universe, and if you're in a position to do so, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash future diaries, where you can become a patron of the show. Your contributions mean the multiverse to us and ensure we can continue broadcasting the show reliably and free of cost to listeners in your universe. So if you find future diaries valuable, we'd appreciate your support. Honestly, Mike, I'm surprised I understood the concept of financial support, but it's definitely thanks to our work as gliders. It's still somewhat foreign where I come from, but I certainly get it now and appreciate its importance in some of the universes this episode is broadcast to. Yeah, it was somewhat easier for me to grasp as we still use money in my universe, albeit differently, but our work together has also enriched my understanding, Antonis. All right, uh, back to today's episode. As we mentioned previously, money doesn't exist in the same way it does in many of our listeners' universes. Indeed not, Mike. In our last episode, we analyzed everyday life and the economy in my universe, which doesn't really have money at all, unless you're including museum artifacts. Today, though, we're visiting Mike's universe where money does exist, but its effects on people's everyday lives are rather different than for many of our listeners. Exactly, Andonis. Today, we'll be looking at one of my diary entries from Glider School. I wrote this about three years before the one Andonis shared on the last episode. Yeah, I remember this one very well. First, a little context. As you may recall, dear listeners, in our last episode, I shared the experience from my multiversal comparative economics class with Professor Madison of uh, learning about Jason, the philosophy student who had to work long hours as a barista just to survive during his studies. Hearing Jason's story piqued my interest in MCE. After reading my diary entry homework, Professor Madison could tell I was curious to dive in, and she thought it wise to match me with an MCE student in another universe. And that's how Mike and I met. Early on in our correspondence, we also exchanged diary entries as a way to learn more about each other's universes. I still remember reading about the concepts of uh, basic income and money and costs in your universe. They made me feel like I was studying ancient history. I couldn't believe that Even though you're living in the equivalent of the year 2184 for our listeners, money still mediates economic exchanges in your universe. Naturally, I had to keep in touch with you to understand more, and I'm very happy I did. That makes two of us, Antonis. But yeah, I I can't say I know why money has been such a sticky institution here. Perhaps it just felt familiar, like something people feel they'd be disoriented without. All right, a little more background for the diary entry of today's episode. 
We had a similar assignment to yours, Antonis, in which our comparative economics professor gave our class the assignment to record and reflect on some of our everyday purchase practices and compare them to those of someone from a completely different universe. Honestly, I thought the assignment sounded tedious when the professor first assigned it, but there's no way I could have anticipated how different my universe would be from others, including yours. What shocked me most about that course, though, were the differences between our current economic paradigm and the ones from the past in our own timeline. Which is why we've invited a very special guest to join us and help explain the economic history of your world. That's right. We're delighted Dr. Julia Schroeder, economic historian and Professor Emerita at Leon Glider School, will be joining us today. Dr. Schroeder's work has been instrumental in improving public understanding of the drivers of economic transitions towards guaranteed income in different societal contexts. Incidentally, she was also my multiversal comparative economics professor when I was in Glider School 15 years ago. But before we talk to Dr. Schroeder, let's rewind 15 years and check in with me during Glider School. All right, well, shall we have a listen? Absolutely. Let's roll. Lyon Glider School, 3rd Tridi of Vendémiaire, 378. Dear Diary, For my new course in Multiversal Comparative Economics, Professor Schutter asked us to take notes on all our major purchases over the last month. At the end of our next class period, we'll be comparing our results with other students in the class, and we'll even tune in to a broadcast from similar students in a different universe to compare notes. All right, so here goes. I've decided to organize my recent major purchases by price, from lowest to highest. Okay, what was first? Uh, that's right. At the end of last month, I spent my remaining basic income money after all my bills were paid on a few new outfits for the new school year. I figured since I had money left over, I might as well indulge in a creative pursuit for its own sake. Overall, I'd say I'm happy with my purchases. Although a pair of jeans is already more expensive than just a few years ago when I was wrapping up high school. I only had 3,000 super francs left, and some jeans go for over a thousand. Of course, there are other cheaper options, but I decided to splurge a bit, and I'd already covered my other monthly expenses, so why not? New clothes were kind of a borderline major purchase, but I figured I'd include them as a lower bound. In addition to those new clothes, I also recently purchased this new audio recorder for 1500 super francs and a new computer for about 7500. Of course, these purchases were a lot easier to budget for since the annual allotment for university students, including postgraduates like me, includes an income enhancement of up to 10,000 super francs per semester for education-related technology purchases. I'm pleasantly surprised with the quality of audio I'm getting from this voice recorder. Of course, the university and the local government both offer computer rentals for just 20 or 25 super francs a month. That would save me a bunch of money and mean I wouldn't have to own one. But I feel like I like having a little more autonomy and flexibility to record interviews on the go while I'm collecting data for my thesis. Next, of course, the most expensive thing most people are purchasing right now is housing. In my case, my housing costs are pretty low just 8,800 a month, and I'm living near the Centreville and right next to the Glider School campus. But fortunately, and thanks to the success of our student worker unions, 
Graduate students have been able to lobby the government to increase basic income to make sure even graduate students aren't getting left behind economically. I still remember my grandmother's stories about her time in school, when it was common for students to spend upwards of 70% of their post-expense stipends on housing. But those numbers are more like 20% now. Grandma was determined to study physics no matter what, but it was a much more difficult choice for her. I think I inherited my love for science from her. I still can't fathom her having to take a job on top of her studies to afford tuition and living expenses, as if studying wasn't enough work already. Or as if her work and her studies wouldn't benefit society as much as it did, making her studies a social investment in the future. Where would we be today without Grandma's macro relay energy transmission technology? But I digress. The last and most expensive aspect of my monthly budget is tuition, which comes in at 10,500 super francs a month. And since healthcare is covered, that just leaves transportation and food costs to round out my budget, which are both modest. Renting a city bike, taking transit, and even auto shares are all extremely reasonable here. So on a monthly income of 50,000 super francs, I have plenty of extra cash in each month's budget to enjoy Lyon's unparalleled restaurant scene and get away to the countryside on the weekends. And about that tuition, my rate is only so high because I'm studying here in the Rhône-Alpes region of France rather than back in the state of Deseret, where I had most recently established residency back in my home country of the United States. That's common, though a lot of regions and countries have different rates for students from different places. It's all part of an incentive structure that allows students to save a bit of money from their guaranteed income if they stay local. But given how generous basic incomes tend to be, many students opt to study abroad, even if only for part of their studies. So that's about it. We've only just started scratching the surface of economies in different universes, as well as at different points in history and mine. But I feel incredibly fortunate to live in a time and a place of abundance. I'm not sure I ever would have contemplated leaving my last job and returning to glider school, and certainly not glider school in France, if it weren't for basic incomes generous enough to provide a good quality of life while I study. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Schroeder. And I guess you too, Mike? It's a pleasure to be speaking with you both today. And thanks. It's great to be back to the future. <laughs> yeah, very funny, Mike. Um, all right, Mike, let's start with you. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your decision-making process for attending glider school. And uh, how did guaranteed income factor into your decision? Well. I was 22 when I decided I wanted to attend glider school. I had finished my undergraduate degree about a year before and taken a job right out of school at a firm in New Paris. I think it's called New York in many of our listeners' universes. But in my universe, the French rather than the English became the global empire of the 19th and 20th centuries. So some things are a bit different. Anyway, the job was in tech consulting, where I was hoping to build some professional experience before returning to business school. Almost immediately after starting, however, I realized our global society was not on an environmentally or socially sustainable path. 
And I decided I wanted to do something more directly linked to addressing these issues. There wasn't anything so imminent as the threat of climate change the world had dealt with in the previous century, but still, longer term, we were not on a good path without some changes. So I started looking at graduate programs I thought would help me and put me in a position to contribute more meaningfully. And that was when I came across the program at Lyon Glider School. I had studied abroad in Lyon as an undergraduate and loved the city, so I jumped at the opportunity. Fortunately, I was accepted. Oh, and in terms of how finances factored in, well, my previous job in tech consulting was fine, but it didn't pay much above the level of guaranteed income offered for graduate students. So there wasn't a strong incentive to remain in the job, and there wasn't a financial reason not to go to glider school. It was really just about deciding what I was interested in and what I wanted to do with my life. So hopefully that answers your question, Antonis. And if it's all right, I'd like to ask Dr. Schroeder a question. Absolutely. Okay, great. So Dr. Schroeder, thanks again for joining us today. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for the assignment I described in my diary entry. It seems like some variation of it was popular across the multiverse. And... Were you in touch with professors across the multiverse in creating the assignment? Thanks for the question, Mike. And it's wonderful to meet again after such a long time. But first things first, I assume our listeners today are from a different universe than both ours and Antonis. So I should probably stick to the basics and avoid getting lost in definitions, abbreviations, and deviating into the various threads behind some of the concepts we'll be analyzing today. We academics tend to lose the attention of our audience like that, way more than we like to admit. So tell me, do you know which universe this episode will be broadcast to? Well, we've configured our intertemporal communications broadcasters to reach a wide range of universes, as long as the topic filters we've retrofitted to them deem the content relevant, of course. Sabir, our multiversal intertemporal transliterator, takes care of interpreting different languages across the multiverse and seamlessly transforming certain technical terms to the ones understood in each of the universes our show is broadcast to. It isn't perfect, but this means we don't have to worry too much about terminology. We sometimes still have to expand a bit on how some technologies, systems, or concepts work in practice, but I honestly have no idea how intertemporal communication could work without severe. This reminds me, though, perhaps you could also say a couple words about you and your work. We know and admire your work so much that we kind of forgot some universes may not be familiar with it. Thank you for your kind words, Mike. And yes, I guess I'm also taking our technology so much for granted that I tend to forget how parts of it function. So, a little bit about me. Like you said at the beginning, I am now Professor Emerita at Lyon Glider School, thanks to my ongoing research on the topic. But 15 years ago, when you joined my class, I had barely finished my first publication on multiversal comparative economics called Not for Granted, Universal Basic Income is Not Multiversal. It was what earned me the professorship that allowed me to subject my first students to the topic to begin with. I was very surprised by the popularity my publication achieved. I guess it helped that the topic and writing were catchy enough to also attract non-academics. That book might have taken me a decade of research to finish, but it was my very first. I was just following my passion as far as I'm concerned, and I consider myself incredibly lucky to have discovered it so early on in my career. What I wanted to explore in Not For Granted 
and this was the motivation behind the whole research project behind it, was how is it possible for people in our universe to follow our dreams? What are the social and economic structures that are in place that make this possible? And what I found is that the existence of an unconditional basic income in our universe is precisely what allowed us to follow our dreams. So in my case, I was able to pursue my passion and concentrate all my attention on it without worrying about whether it would bring me enough super fun to cover my living expenses. And that, even if I decided to pursue it long enough to make a job out of it, I would not be wasting the best of my capacity in any other job while studying just to survive. Well, okay, not all my attention, about half of it, as I was also raising my son, Ulysse, at the same time, which helps explain why it took me an entire decade to finish my publication, but that actually enhances my argument even further as I could devote myself to both my research and my family without stressing over the expenses. I realize this might sound obvious to some of our listeners, but in minds in my universe, basic income is absolutely taken for granted. It enables the lives we live and we don't really think about it. Making clear how universal income works and how it is not universal across the multiverse was the purpose of the book. Thank you so much for sharing those details about the background behind your book projects. So how did you take this research and think about getting the concepts through to your students in class? I must confess that the idea for that assignment was not entirely my own. When I started my research on multiversal comparative economics, I was as surprised as I was fascinated to discover that different universes have different economic systems. But despite the general direction of my enthusiasm towards studying those differences, I had no specific focus for my research. The field of MCE was brand new to us. So one morning, when I was putting on my boots to go out for an interview related to my research, I remembered something my grandma used to tell me as a kid, that her own father used to tell her. My great-grandfather, Sam, was a policeman, back when policemen had a lot of work to do, which was also very dangerous, for more or less the same reasons behind the story I'm about to tell. Buy nice or buy twice, he said, and then went on to explain how rich people were rich because they could afford to buy great quality everyday things, like boots, that lasted for years and years to come. When he was growing up, however, he could only afford the really poor quality boots that would hurt his feet and he'd also wear them until, well, after they were completely destroyed because he had no money left to buy a new pair. He'd then buy the same boots again and again because he could not afford any better until he'd end up buying a dozen pairs of boots by the time the rich man's first pair had worn out, spending those several times more money and still only hurting his feet. You see, my great-grandfather grew up in extreme poverty, which is something I only knew existed thanks to the history books and my grandma's stories. Since by the time my own parents had grown up, unconditional basic income was the cornerstone of our economic system and had eradicated poverty completely. I explained the details of how that happened in my book, but the main premise was that, to use the same analogy, everyone was equally able to afford the best boots thanks to this policy. Anyway, after this story came to mind while I was wearing my boots, I knew what the focus of my research would be, and the rest is, well, it's history. So I guess we can both thank our grandmas, Mike. Of course, I did have to collaborate with professors in other universes in order to collect and share case studies for my assignments with you. After focusing my research on how economic systems across the multiverse impact people's everyday lives, 
And that, of course, includes Professor Madison Antonis. Wow, what a story. It explains socioeconomic unfairness in such an elegant manner by simply looking at an everyday example. I feel like I've heard a similar story from another universe, though. Only, I think it was from a work of fiction in this case. I can't quite place it in space or time. <laughs> hmm. I, I hope one of our listeners will remind me on our Discord server. Discord server. I wonder how Sabir will translate it this term. All right. Well, Dr. Schroeder, next question for you. In Mike's diary entry and in his answer to my first question, he talked about the system of guaranteed income on Earth in your universe that you also just described. Could you elaborate more on this system for our listeners? What exactly is it and how does it work? Well, there's a lot to unpack about it, but I'll try to keep it simple to avoid yet another long monologue. First of all, what is it? A basic income is a periodic cash payment delivered to all the citizens of a community on an individual basis without any conditions such as means testing or work requirements. And it is delivered automatically without any additional bureaucracy or any kind of application. There are six important characteristics that define it and distinguish it from any other form of social welfare. First, it is periodic, which means that it is paid at regular intervals and it's not a one-off stimulus package, as I've heard them called in some of the universities of studies. So you can always rely on it and plan around it in the long run instead of being stressed by its scarcity. In our universe, it's a monthly payment. Second, it is money, which means it's delivered in a form of an exchangeable currency that you choose how to spend. It is not predefined like food stamps or vouchers of any kind. That way, it shows trust that individuals know their own needs best and respect their priorities instead of patronizingly deciding for them and invading their privacy like supposedly caring policies I've seen in other universes as well as what we had here before. Third, it is individual, not per family or household. That way it empowers the individual who receives it to decide how to use it, preventing any unequal relations and dependencies from getting in the way. Fourth, it is universal, meaning absolutely everyone gets it, irrespective of age, ethnicity, ability, place of residence, profession, etc. No stigmatizing means testing, no forms to fill, nothing. If you're a member of our community, you get it. No questions asked. Fifth, it is unconditional. It doesn't depend on any preconditions, obligation to get employed or do community service, conform to any traditional social roles or any form of discrimination. You also don't lose it if a condition changes, which, for example, prevents exploitative employment relationships simply by giving employees the power to say no without losing their basic income. It is treated as a human right and benefits all other human rights proactively instead of only after the damage is done. Finally, it is high enough. The purpose is for it to ensure everyone's survival is guaranteed and protected. You shouldn't need to prove anything other than that you are human to be able to survive. As a society, we've been producing way more than enough to cover everyone's basic material needs for several centuries now. So there's no need to maintain a mentality of scarcity except where there is actual scarcity. We also take it up a notch and with a combination of different policies, we are now able to provide enough to empower every individual's equal participation in society. 
which means you don't get barely enough to cover your daily caloric intake and sleep under a roof, but you can also afford everyday things like calling a friend when you need to talk or grabbing a coffee with them, investing in your education, taking up a hobby, participating in a citizen's assembly, planting a tree, whatever you choose to do to be a member of the community is important for a policy meant to maintain social cohesion. So to recap, periodic, money, individual, universal, unconditional, and high enough. That's what you need for a policy to be considered basic income, and that's what we've ended up having here. Oh, I should probably clarify, we didn't exactly replace the other social welfare policies with it. We still provide public education and healthcare to everyone independently of our basic income, and we still have policies that provide additional support to parents, the elderly, persons with disabilities, a fund for artists, for farmers, a youth fund, and stipends for highly specialized private education, for example, like the Glider School, and a wide variety of other policies that do target specific groups who could use the extra support. So basic income is on top of those. But we've actually been spending less on some of those as a result of having basic income. For example, we've seen fewer hospitalizations, attributed mostly to better nutrition, more preventive care, and less stress. So healthcare is more efficient financially and otherwise. Criminality has been reduced dramatically, so an enormous part of public spending that used to go to legal expenses, policing, incarceration, and so on, has no longer been needed over the last 80 years since basic income was introduced. And the amounts we save on bureaucracy, no longer having regulations to check and inspecting everyone all the time, is just humongous. Oh, we've also almost forgotten how to organize a soup kitchen. It turns out the solution to poverty was as simple as people are poor because they have no money, so give them money. Well, it is more complicated than that in practice, but the principle is the same. This all sounds amazing. I mean, I don't understand why you still need money to begin with, but I guess if you have to have it, this is a much better way to ensure better lives. I have so many questions about how it works, though. Does everyone receive the same amount of money each month or... Does it differ from country to country or by age or by any other factor? And how do you get it? Yeah, so that was one of the many questions the policymakers who took the first steps had to answer. And not only was the answer not a simple one, but there were several different proposals, trials and experiments to get somewhat closer to an answer. And many fights, I might add. The conclusion of which was that If an individual is expected to not just survive, but thrive in the way we've discussed, the amount cannot be an absolute one, but a relative one. It should always adapt to the conditions the individual is living in, and those change. The short answer, therefore, is as much as the cost of living in the area the individual resides. We've been meticulously gathering data on everything for a few centuries already anyway, so it's easy to have that calculated almost real-time and adapt the amount accordingly for the next month. Who provides it and how do you get it in practice, though? Well, to answer that, I should explain the golden triangle of basic income. And I should remember to stick to the basics, otherwise I'll be here all day. So, in this universe, an individual is a citizen of at least, fiscally, three levels of community. The local one, which is the city you live in, the national one, which gathers several different cities with enough in common to want to be governed from the same entity, and the supranational one, which gathers several nations with common interests. I won't get into the system of governance of each, 
assuming you also don't want this interview to last for months, but suffice to say, citizens have somewhat of a say in all three levels. It's not perfect, but it works. Each of these provides a different part of a citizen's basic income that together comprise the calculated amount that covers the cost of living. The supranational level is covered by a union, which runs commercial activities mostly for benefiting the nations connected through it, such as providing financial services, communication technologies, cross-border energy solutions, and so on. And then equally distributes the profits of one year to all the citizens of the union as a dividend spread across the 12 months of the next year. Then on national level, there is a system of taxation. That taxation ensures the nation state can build and maintain the infrastructure that connects and covers the needs of all the cities in it, provide for their health and education, and so on. Most of this system has been simplified and automated along the past decades, and a dedicated bank account to get upon birth is used to both deduct the citizens' taxes and deposit their benefits automatically. So it made sense to use the same system for providing a basic income to everyone after the necessary changes in taxation to cover for it were implemented. The first two were provided in super fonds, but on a local level, the city provides its part of the basic income in an alternative currency that can only be used within the city. Since everyone gets it though, this motivates people to buy most of their food from the local farmers and cover some of their everyday expenses locally, support local artists and so on, strengthening their local community and keeping their cities resilient. The nation state provides 70% of the cost of living like that each month and the city covers 30% targeted locally. The union dividend is on top of them, aiming to incentivize participation in society and not just survival. Together, they create a nice balance among the different citizen identities each represents, empowering each in a complementary manner. As amazing as that may sound, we still have several other problems that basic income has not been able to solve. For example, while we were focusing almost all our attention as a society to experimenting with different policies to resolve social inequalities, we may have neglected parts of production chains that depend on finite precious metals. So I'm afraid we're getting closer to an environmental crisis similar to what we struggled to prevent 150 years ago. And to be perfectly fair, it's not as if we've completely eradicated social inequalities. There is still a wealth disparity that gives an unfair advantage to already wealthy families to stay in positions of power and influence. It's just that people at the other end of the spectrum no longer die as a result. Not only that, but they are now free to pursue their passions and make choices that are truly meaningful both to them and to society around them. And to share a personal example of how this works, guaranteed income is what made the career path of Glider possible for someone like me who doesn't come from an independently wealthy family. So the change you describe is personal for me. I will always be grateful for what made that happen. How did we get here? I was hoping, Dr. Schroeder, that you could explain the major events that led to our current system. Oh, where to start and what to leave out? Let me think. Mm, it wasn't an easy path, I can tell you that. And my poor great-grandfather Sam saw the bitter end of it all. Let's see how I can keep it super brief, but mention the important bits. I mentioned the focus on social inequalities of the past several decades of our history. Well. That was the consequence of tremendous pain before that. At the end of the 21st century, 
Wealth inequality was at its peak. Social movements against systemic causes of inequality, such as colonialism, racism, sexism, homophobia, and others, were somewhat successful, but ultimately failed to expand to an international level. Inequalities kept growing until the end of the 21st century, when revolts started sparking. In 2093, large protests erupted in major cities in most countries on the planet, almost simultaneously, and seemed to be coordinated at an international level. The protests were peaceful at first, but it didn't take long for violence to begin. The first case took place in Brazil. National governments were sending special forces to suppress the protests everywhere, and in Rio, police began using lethal force to quell protesters. From then on, violence was the norm. From Rio to Rome, and then everywhere else, faster than the news could report. Then, the secret services of England and France joined forces to try and crack down on how the revolts were coordinated, but a French spy accidentally shot an English reporter during an operation, causing a diplomatic incident. Negotiations failed, and in the heated atmosphere, England declared war against France, India joined France, Egypt joined England, and soon the whole world followed within just four months. My great-grandfather fought in that war. He grew up extremely poor in England, but somehow survived long enough to get a job as a policeman at the city guard, and he and my great-grandmother had my grandma during that time. When the revolt started, as a policeman, he was of course called to stop the protesters. But he was well informed of the nature of the protests and remembering his childhood in poverty, he didn't have the heart to follow orders. So instead, he went into hiding. The whole situation escalated into a world war way too fast. Before he knew it, he had joined the independent guerrilla forces that were continuing the revolts against the national governments, now officially part of the war. But not before he secured safe passage for my then teenager grandma to neutral Switzerland. It was the last time she saw him. They never found his body. The war was devastating. It only lasted 19 months, but decimated 27% of the world's population. There were no winners. Military technology was advanced enough on all fronts to eliminate lives faster than they were being created. A three-day truce between all forces was called during which the governments, as well as the guerrillas, realized the losses they suffered and extended their three days truce indefinitely. France and England signed the treaty in Brussels, declaring not only to halt the military expenses and redirect the funds to mutual trade agreements in an attempt to secure peace, but also, and perhaps more importantly, to use 30% of the profits from their new trade relations to co-finance a cross-border fund dedicated to alleviating poverty in both countries. More treaties followed, more countries joined. Three years later, in 2108, Super, Société Unie pour l'égalitarisme, la réconciliation et la solidarité, was established. Super is the coalition of national governments that safeguards the increasing number of treaties signed among them and carries out the policies developed through the international cooperation of the member states. But Super desperately needed a policy to persuade smaller states to join them convinced the guerrillas that they would keep their promise to alleviate poverty, and the greatest challenge of all, to build social cohesion among all citizens of the Union so soon after the war. The idea actually came from a South African governor originally, but France quickly took credit for it, as they wanted to push it together with their own idea to use a common currency across all super members. 
Having remained the dominant global economy, despite being war-torn, France insisted on using franc, their national currency, as the new international one. It was already used extensively as a de facto trading currency before the war anyway, so despite disagreements, France got its way. They simply rebranded it to Superfranc to fit the new concept. The policy itself was a supranational dividend I described before. Truth be told, a common currency did make both trading and the dividend much easier to distribute. And so it happened. The impressive results of the dividend in indeed alleviating poverty across all superstates, but also in vastly increasing social cohesion and developing a sense of super citizenship, inspired some cities to experiment with dispersing a basic income using a complementary local currency. The combination of the two policies brought incredible results to the citizens. Most aspects of their lives improved dramatically. More cities replicated the policy, and in about a decade, it was essentially all cities in super. It was actually New Paris that started the snowball effect, Mike. Nation states followed with their own basic income scheme just four years after the first cities, and the rest is as you know it. The transition wasn't as smooth as I described it, of course, but I've already taken up so much of your time. Oh, I could listen to you all day, doctor. I've learned so much from your stories, and I can safely say I understand a lot more about economics across the multiverse after this. All right, we usually end our podcast by asking our guests to share a message for our listeners. If there was one message you'd like our audience to take from your research and the history of economic transitions, what would that be? I don't think I'll be very original with this one, but I do have a point I'd like to make. I've listened to some of your previous episodes and noticed a few variations of the same message. If things aren't working exactly as they should, try something new. A different policy that could help everyday people in their everyday lives. It shouldn't require war and repeated despair to want to do better. And if you have no idea where to begin, the answer might be right in front of you. Just think of Sam and his boots. I think those are wonderful words to end on. Thanks so much, Dr. Schroeder. That will do it for this episode of Future Diaries. And to you, our listeners, if you've enjoyed our show, don't forget to become a patron at patreon.com slash future diaries. Because while money doesn't exist in the same way in the universes we're broadcasting from, your financial support does help ensure a stable connection for listeners in your universe. Future Diaries patrons in your universe also get exclusive benefits, including merch, early access to podcast episodes, and extra privileges on our Discord server. And be sure to join our Discord server, where we can build a community of Future Diaries together. Please also rate and subscribe to Future Diaries on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed in your universe. You can also visit our website at futurediaries.show, where you can find additional content about us and the universes we come from, as well as subscribe to our newsletter, join our Discord server, and find other ways to connect with us here at Future Diaries. I'm Antonis. And I'm Mike. And we'll talk to you in the future. future.